Uh, well, good morning again. <clears throat> Today, uh, we are going to take a one-week break from our summer sermon series. <clears throat> I want to pause uh, to talk about the issue of abortion and the recent Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. And if you happen to be visiting today, or this is your first time, uh, know that we don't ever do anything like this. We're not that kind of church. Um, And I do this with so much reservation because abortion is a uh, deeply divisive issue, even among followers of Jesus, even in this room. It's a politically charged and partisan issue. Right now, what you think about abortion is highly correlated to how you vote. It's an extremely emotional issue. Emotions are are higher about this than they have been in 50 years. It's an incredibly complex issue. Um, There are so many different facets and there is no way we can even talk about it really in just one sermon. So um, I've written and rewritten this like 10 times and it feels like I'm going to like take a grenade and pull the pen and just kind of throw it and then walk away. Like that's just how complex it is. And then of course, it's a very uh, personal and for some um, a very traumatic issue. Uh, So add all that up, divisive, politically charged, partisan, emotional, complex, very personal and traumatic, and that almost always equals sermon disaster. (laughs) Um, Add to that that I am a man uh, speaking to uh, an audience that includes a lot of women, and I'm walking into this just knowing the odds are really high this could be a disaster. And yet... It feels irresponsible um, for me in my role as a pastor, and it feels irresponsible for us as a community of faith to not pause and talk about this when everyone else and everything else is. And so I want to ask for two things from you today. Uh, Number one, grace. I'm just going to do my best to try to help you think about this issue as a follower of Jesus, and I will almost certainly fall short. Uh, So I need your grace. And then second, um, I ask for openness. Would you simply uh, listen with an open mind and an open heart and consider whatever it is that God wants you to hear? Openness means you're not listening to determine what you agree with or what you disagree with, which is really our default posture whenever it comes to political issues or touchy issues. That's my default posture. What do I agree with? What do I disagree with? Right. And so I'm asking you to intentionally choose not to listen that way today, but instead to be open to whatever it is that God wants you to hear, whether that's in something I say or something I don't say. So, with that in mind, I want to share with you four things that we should lament as it relates to abortion and the Dobbs decision as followers of Jesus. Now, lament is a uh, key word here. Lament means to express sorrow, grief, or mourning, that something is not 
the way it should be. And lament is very different from how most are responding right now. When the Supreme Court made its decision uh, a week ago to overturn Roe v. Wade, there were two really strong and emphatic responses. Many on one side were overwhelmed with joy and celebration, and many on the other side were overwhelmed with anger and outrage. And, and if you find yourself in uh, one of those camps, that is okay. There are good and valid reasons behind what you are feeling. And I actually want to affirm some of those reasons on both sides today. But I also want to challenge us to think about this issue uh, more broadly, meaning uh, we're not going to get into the weeds of judicial theory or constitutional law or any of those kind of things. And we're not going to approach this as Republicans or Democrats or pro-lifers or pro-choicers or even really as Americans. I listened to a great uh, podcast yesterday and, and the host had a whole bunch of guests on the podcast and uh, was asking each person, based on your position, what are you thinking? So as a pro-lifer, how are you feeling about this? As a pro-choice uh, Pro-choicer, how are you feeling about this? As a libertarian, how are you feeling about this? As a constitutional scholar, how are you feeling about this? And, and it was really helpful and good, but I want to ask a different question. How should I, as a follower of Jesus, feel? How, how should I, how should we, as people who seek to live our lives in light of his perspective, his teaching, his life, his kingdom values, in light of all of that, how should I think and feel? And, and part of the answer, there's probably a huge answer there, but part of that answer, I think, should be lament. And so let me walk through four things to lament. The first two are specifically about abortion, and the second two are definitely related, but much broader. So first, <clears throat> we should lament the tragedy of abortion's circumstances, which means we lament the circumstances that women find themselves in, where it seems that their best option or maybe their only option is abortion. We lament that many women have abortions because they cannot afford to raise their children. They cannot afford to raise another child and the father of the child refuses to help. We lament that many women have abortions because of significant and complex and horrible health problems that arise in the pregnancy that threaten the life or the quality of life of the child or of the mother. We deeply lament that some women have abortions because they've been sexually assaulted or raped. We lament that many have abortions because they made a horrible mistake and because they're scared and they're lonely and they're ashamed and oftentimes young and they have no support and no help and they have no idea what to do. And we lament 
that criminalizing abortion will probably do nothing to address the tragedy of any of these circumstances. See, we have to start with the circumstances. And regardless of of any decisions that get made within these circumstances, as followers of Jesus, we should lament all of them. They should bring us to a place of deep sorrow, deep empathy, deep compassion for those who find themselves in these circumstances. I spoke with a couple that went through some of these circumstances. They faced huge health problems that arose in their pregnancy, and they were scared and lonely and confused and overwhelmed. And I thought, this is not the way it's supposed to be. That's what lament is, right? What they're going through now, this is not the way pregnancy or or parenthood is supposed to be. The first question they asked me was, Norton, if we get an abortion, are we going to hell? I said, absolutely not. No, no. And they said, if we get an abortion, what will other people think? And I said, I don't know. But I can tell you that we, as a church, will support you and love you and be with you in this no matter what you do. We're in this with you all the way, no matter what you do, because we lament the circumstances that you find yourself in. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And as followers of Jesus, we have to start there. We cannot go anywhere else or talk about anything else until we begin by lamenting the tragedy of the circumstances that so many women find themselves in. Second, we should lament the tragedy of abortion's consequences. We lament the pain and the trauma that so many women feel in their physical bodies as a result of abortion. And they carry that the rest of their lives. We lament the shame and the guilt that so many women feel, often because of a decision they feel like they had to make, or the, the judgment and condemnation that they feel from others because of a decision they felt like they had to make. And we lament the loss of life, the loss that women feel in their own lives and the loss of a child. That in God's ideal world, a world where there's not disease and illness, a world where there's not sexual assault, a world where there's not economic inequality, a world where there's not broken relationships and broken commitments and broken sexuality, we lament that in that world, this child would be born and this child would would live a life that would bear God's image and likeness. And so we lament the loss of life. 
Now, there is an ethical debate here. When does human life become human life? Is it the moment of conception? This is an extremely complex question. There are scientific angles, ethical angles, biblical angles, and we don't have time to go into all of them, but I can say there's not a clear and undisputed answer. I do know that a baby's heart begins to beat at about six weeks, and there's brain activity at about eight weeks. And the heartbeat and brain activity are the two criteria that doctors use to determine when a human life has ended. I know that um, the, fir the first time my wife, Janice, got pregnant and the baby's heart suddenly stopped beating at about eight weeks. And all indications were it had been strong up until that moment. I know that we felt the greatest sense of loss and sadness that we had ever felt. Because this person who was going to be a part of our family, we had just lost. I know... I know there's two women living in Guatemala today that carried human lives in their bodies that became our son and our daughter. Um, I know that for all the moms out there, when women get pregnant, they never say, I just felt the fetus kick. Or we haven't decided what to name the fetus yet. We don't use that language, right? We just intuitively know this is a child. This is a baby. And I know that in some of the Bible's most beautiful passages, like Psalm 139, they describe how God knew me and loved me as a unique person as he knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so as followers of Jesus, we should lament the tragedy of abortion's circumstances and we should lament the tragedy of abortion's consequences, the loss of life in both a woman's life and the child's life. Because as followers of Jesus, we always lament the loss of human life. We lament the 51 people that died in a trailer in Texas because of human trafficking. We lament that so many people keep dying in mass violence shootings and police brutality shootings. We lament the lack of quality health care that leads to the loss of life, particularly among the elderly or oppressed populations. We lament when war takes human life, when American drones take human life, when opioids take human life, when mental health and suicide takes human life. As followers of Jesus, we always lament the devaluing and the diminishing and the loss of human life. And we have to figure out how to hold on to both of these laments. 
right? How to lament both the circumstances and the consequences. And, and it feels like sometimes in our culture, one side only wants to talk about the circumstances and ignore the consequences, and the other side only wants to talk about the consequences and ignore the circumstances. And as followers of Jesus, we have to lament both. And I don't know what that means going forward. I don't know what that means for public policy. I don't know what it means for healthcare providers who have to navigate such a difficult situation. I just know what it means for the church. It means that we are a place and a people and a community that always laments the circumstances and the consequences and offers compassion in the middle of both. Number three, this one's more broad. We should lament the church's intoxication with political power. Uh, Very quick history lesson here. When Roe v. Wade was first decided in 1973, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was largely opposed to it, but most American mainline Protestants and evangelicals were not. It just wasn't really on their radar. And within about a decade, that changed. Uh, Partly out of conviction, this deep theological understanding that all human life is sacred and should be treated as such. And so uh, as the number of abortion doubled in our nation from 1973 to 1983, some followers of Jesus focused on loving and compassionate ways to address both the tragic circumstances and the tragic consequences of abortion. And so I think about my mom growing up. And I, I saw her volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center where she helped teenagers, teenage mothers, with support and assistance to walk through these terrible circumstances. And it didn't matter what they decide, she was just there to help. I think of the countless Christians who gave their lives to improving foster care and pathways to adoption. I think of those who recognize we need to teach better sex education and provide more methods for birth control. And over the decades, all of these things have been incredibly effective and helpful. Did you know that the abortion rate among American women by 2017 had plummeted to lower than what it was in 1973 before Roe v. Wade was decided? That's amazing. Most people don't know that. But if we go back to the 1970s and 80s, those great decades of disco and Duran Duran and Demogorgons, the abortion rates were going up. And there were a number of other trends that were taking place at that time. It seemed to many American Christians that traditional family values were being threatened in ways they had never seen. 
Divorce rates were skyrocketing. Men's and women's roles were changing. Attitudes towards sex and sexuality were changing. And of course, it was the height of the Cold War. And so there was a lot of fear and and many Christians began to, to circle the wagons and they went into battle mode and everything became a war to be fought against the secularizing culture. And I grew up during this time. I saw it, I lived it, I experienced it. And abortion became the leading edge. It became the defining issue. Somewhere along the way, a whole bunch of Christians decided that the ultimate goal, the ultimate victory that we could show we've won this war against culture would be to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so many American Christians and churches and denominations and organizations and institutions became intoxicated with political power, which meant aligning with one political party to get the right people in office who would put the right justices on the Supreme Court who would eventually overturn Roe v. Wade. This was the agenda from the 1980s on. And by the way, um, this is not a criticism of the Republican Party, the party that many Christians aligned with. The problem is not that Christians from the 1980s bound themselves uncritically to the Republican Party. The problem is that they bound themselves uncritically to any political party, which is not the way of Jesus. Jesus actually challenged all of the political parties of his day and all of the political systems. The people who are too conservative and the people who are too liberal. The ones on the right and the ones on the left. Jesus challenged all of them and he so subverted all of the political parties that they eventually banded together to crucify him. And if you study church history... Anytime followers of Jesus, anytime the church has become intoxicated with political power, the results have been disastrous. And so it's not surprising that 30 or 40 years later, here we are. And the church, and I'm just painting it broadly with one brush because that's how we're perceived. The church has lost an entire generation of young people because they only see us as too political, too judgmental, too known for what we're against, and too hypocritical. And it's because we're intoxicated with political power and we don't even see it. And so whatever you think about the specific merits of this one court case, Whatever you think about the merits of it or the flaws of the Dobbs decision, one consequence is that it will likely deepen the church's intoxication with political power. Because we finally voted someone in who's so much of their life and their character is opposed to everything that Jesus stood for. But he put the Supreme Court justices on the bench we've been waiting for to deliver the victory we've been praying for. 
It's going to deepen this intoxication with political power. And we should lament that. One more. Remember, grace and openness. Number four, we should lament the American idolatry of personal rights. Uh, Idolatry is a really rich word. It means to worship something. It's not just having something or using something or believing something is important. We all have money. We use money. It's necessary. We believe it's important. But some people worship money. Money has become an idol for some. That's what idolatry is. When you worship something, when it shapes your whole life. And people often have idols that they cannot see. And entire cultures and societies can have idols they cannot see. And in American culture, one of our idols is personal rights. Personal rights is this idea. It's my body, my life. My rights, my choice. And while this is very much associated with the pro-choice position in this debate, what you need to know and understand is virtually all Americans believe deeply in and worship this right. Even those on the right, especially those on the right. Think about this for a second. When COVID got bad and there were mask mandates, And then the vaccine came out and there were vaccine mandates. Many politically conservative Americans said very strongly and very loudly, if I don't want to wear a mask, I shouldn't have to. If I don't want to get the vaccine, I shouldn't have to. It's my body, my health care, my choice. Or think about guns. The link between the mass availability of guns and mass violence in America is indisputable. But many Americans continue to say very emphatically, it's my life, it's my rights, it's my choice on these issues. But on that issue, the government should step in and determine what choices you can or cannot make. And do you see the inconsistency? And by the way, it happens on both sides. You can't on the abortion issue say, it's my body, it's my choice. But then when it comes to masks and vaccines and guns, you say, we need to pass laws. We need to pass restrictions. We have to take away some people's rights in order to protect life. Now, the point is not to show how deeply inconsistent we all are. It's to show how much we are all in love with our personal rights. How much this language of personal rights dominates this discussion and so many other discussions we're having now. How much we worship our personal rights. And as followers of Jesus, we should lament that because it's not the way of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that there is no language of personal rights anywhere in the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of the Bible. Now there's all kinds of other language. There's upholding of the value of justice. There's the language of human dignity and sacredness. There's the language of honoring our bodies, our physical bodies with integrity. There's honoring one another. There's all kinds of ideas about loving one another and serving one another and forgiving one another. There are so many 
powerful kingdom values that we are called to embody and to live out and uphold as followers of Jesus. Personal rights is not one of them. And so we need to lament that it has come to dominate so much of this discourse and we can begin to offer a better way. And that's really where I want to end today. For many of us, this is just a political issue. But not for all of us. Some are hurting. Some are scared. The debate's not going to go away. It will dominate every election in the foreseeable future. And it will have very real implications for some people. And so as followers of Jesus, let's enter every decision, every situation, every person's story and every conversation with the eyes and the ears and the heart of Jesus. Let's stop worshiping personal rights and let's stop being intoxicated with political power. And let's just show compassion and grace in every circumstance and with every consequence. Let me pray for us. God, we need so much of your grace and wisdom in our country and in our communities and in our lives right now. And so you, we pray that you would help us to see what that looks like. You would help us to live that out. I pray that if there are hidden idols we're worshiping, that you would reveal those to us. And that you would welcome us to be the kind of community of love and grace and compassion and justice and beauty and goodness and truth that you've called us to be in the world. I pray this in your name. Amen.